I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And there's a time-worn saying, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Now that works well enough as a piece of proverbial wisdom, but global seafood consumption today is roughly 160 million tons per year. So ensuring that our global fish populations remain sustainable into the future isn't some leisurely thought experiment. It's a pressing issue to be solved right now. And that doesn't even address other troubling factors affecting this ecosystem, like harmful microplastics and mercury. But what if we could harvest fish without fisheries? What if we could make real, authentic, delicious salmon from stem cells? Our guest this week is the co-founder of a company that is on a mission to create the cleanest, most sustainable seafood on the planet inside of a high-tech lab in San Francisco. Justin Kolbeck is the co-founder and CEO of WildType, which is on a mission to craft the cleanest, most sustainable seafood on the planet. Previously, Justin was a strategic consultant who helped companies develop and launch new products, and he began his career as a foreign service officer, serving in Afghanistan, Australia, Pakistan, and Washington, D.C. Justin, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you today, Michael. Thank you. Well, what a coincidence. It's great to have you as well. So this podcast has hosted expert guests to discuss a wide variety of topics, everything from nuclear energy to mRNA vaccines, augmented reality, and so much more. And leading up to these conversations, I'll usually ask close friends and family members if they might have any questions for the upcoming guest. And so I'm particularly excited about this conversation, because when I told a few people about it, most of them struggled to come up with a question because the very topic itself, cultivated seafood grown in a lab, was so new and unknown to them. So we have a lot to get into. But before we do, I'd love for you to share with us how WildType first got started. You co-founded the company with Arye Effenbein in 2016. Arye was a practicing cardiologist, and as mentioned in your intro, you had your own successful career as a consultant. So how did you and Arye meet, and how did the two of you decide to make the leap into the nascent world of cellular agriculture? We met over 10 years ago now at a party, actually, that we were both invited to. And the premise, this is in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was doing some graduate school and Arya had just finished his PhD and MD and was at the Yale School of Medicine doing his residency in internal medicine and then later cardiology. And the idea with this party was that nobody knew each other and they drew from all the different schools at Yale. And it's funny, I was just thinking about this last night, how fortuitous that was. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that event changed the course of my life. So we met that night, really became close friends shortly thereafter. And a few years later, Aria had gone to a conference in the Netherlands hosted by a researcher named Dr. Mark Post. And this was 2015. And the title of the conference was the Cultivated Beef Conference. And at that point, Dr. Post had introduced this idea of growing animal meat from cells in a way of disintermediating the animal from the meat products that we eat was possible. And at the time, it was more of a, I think, a scientific endeavor rather than a commercial one. And Aria came back from that conference, told me a little bit about that idea. We talked a lot more about it and really very quickly started to hone in on the idea of potentially deploying technology like that to supplement our seafood supplies. We can get a lot more into that, but the short version of the story is that there's not enough seafood to go around today and it's only going to get worse going forward. So back in 2016, when we both had 
other jobs. We started working on the company on nights and weekends from our own savings, slowly developing the technology and, and first coming to a point of conviction between the two of us that A, this technology was feasible, that we could actually make seafood using these kind of novel techniques and B, that we could get people excited enough to try it. And so that was really the genesis of the company when it was just the two of us about five years ago. And something you said there from the speaker in that conference that Arya attended echoes something I heard him say in another interview, where the idea behind WildType was being able to create just what we eat from the meat that we consume, right? Because if you have a wild salmon or a farm-grown salmon, there's a lot of the stuff in the fish the bones, et cetera, that humans don't usually eat. But with something like wild type, you can grow only what we consume and nothing else. So to leapfrog off something you just said about that conference where they were talking about beef grown in a lab, other startups in the cell-based meat industry are growing or attempting to grow things like beef, pork, and chicken, for example. And chicken is the most consumed meat in America. So you were talking a bit about how the current way we're farming salmon is unsustainable. And eventually we might tap into all of our supplies of that fish. But when you were in the formative stages of wild type, was there anything else that made you want to pursue fish specifically and also specifically co-host salmon from the North Pacific Ocean as the kind of lab-grown grail you were pursuing? Yeah, there were a few reasons. You know, just maybe for starters, given my background in the foreign service, I, I spent a lot of time overseas in places with a great deal of food insecurity. And so I think I tend to default toward maybe a slightly more global view of things. And it's unmistakable that seafood is actually our species number one source of protein. As you rightly pointed out, that's not the case here in the United States, but absolutely it's true in, in a lot of the more populous countries, particularly in Asia. And so we thought having a really big splash, pardon the pun, it'd be easier to start with something like seafood that is so widely consumed. And then we honed in on salmon pretty quickly because it's the second most consumed seafood in the U.S. after shrimp, the first most consumed finfish. And from a culinary perspective, you can use it in so many different culinary applications that it gave us this opportunity to create a food that wouldn't just be interesting to an American consumer, but to a global one with applications like sushi and smoked salmon and baked salmon and all these other things that are used in so many traditions around the world. That was very exciting. Was there a decisive moment where, say, you decided to go with salmon instead of, say, tuna? Yeah, I think it started with this idea of starting with the biggest markets first, just so we could have a big impact. So, bluefin tuna is a really great example of something that's very important to point this kind of technology toward. It's very difficult to farm that fish. I think most people probably heard some rumblings about the dire straits that that fish finds itself in yes. with respect to being endangered. However, it's a very small market, right? Not a lot of people eat bluefin tuna every day, you know, but I think if an American's going to order a seafood dish from a menu, they'll probably pick salmon. So it just seemed like an opportunity to have a really big impact, but I definitely don't want to diminish the importance of other types of species like bluefin, for example, which are really, really important for this kind of work. For our listeners, what are some of the problems facing the salmon population today that make wild types mission important? Because I think a lot of folks, including myself, before I started researching this area, aren't really familiar with some of the problems that are making sustaining the salmon population possible. I was at a conference up in the Vancouver area on Monday, and I was listening to one of the First Nations leaders there talking about the importance of salmon to them and their culture. And he was telling a story, 
you know, about 40 years ago when he was a boy, they would walk down to the river when the salmon were running, coming back up the river. And he described it as like a black snake. There were millions of them just kind of packed into this river coming back upstream to spawn. And these days, he says, it's kind of like a meager trickle. And I think that story, that firsthand account of somebody who lives in salmon country reflects the broader plight that salmon are having broadly in the wild. And you can see it in the declining orca populations, for example, in the the Puget Sound area in the Pacific Northwest here in the US. You can see it in the, the fishery numbers in places like the Bristol Bay up in Alaska. It's unmistakable that wild salmon are facing an extinction crisis during our lifetime if we don't change our ways. And a lot of that is due to overfishing and a lot of it's due to climate change. So, that's one big problem. And I don't think there's a person on the planet, certainly that's listening maybe today, that would be excited to see such a beautiful species go extinct. Nobody wants that. I think everybody would agree that protecting wild salmon is in our interest, not just because they're this wonderful species, but they're cornerstone species. They feed the bears and the eagles and they're when they go upstream to spawn and then die afterwards, their nutrients feed the trees. They're interconnected with the beautiful places that I think we value in this country. In terms of fish farming, that's a whole different story, but also challenging. So, fish farming, you know, I've had a chance to meet some people who run fish farms around the world. And I was chatting with one of them down in Chile. They actually grow a lot of different salmon there, including coho. And he mentioned that they've had to move their farm several times now, further and further south because of warming climates. And, you know, there are only so many coastlines in the world where fish farming for salmon makes sense. The temperature has to be right. The coastlines have to be right. A lot of things have to be in place for that technology to work. And I think, unfortunately, because of climate change, we're seeing those potential opportunities for additional fish farms close. So, on one hand, you have demand rising substantially for this kind of product. I think a lot of people love salmon because it's this very nutritious, dense, protein that we can eat that's low in saturated fat, high in omega-3s that a lot of people agree are good for cardiovascular health and so on. And so, that's pushing up demand to levels that we've never seen before. And on the other hand, we're seeing supply constrained substantially over the long run. And so, the result of that, of course, is higher prices and less accessibility for this wonderful fish. And so, our idea was, let's see if we can add a third source into that mix to help maybe take some pressure off of those wild populations, preserve biodiversity in our oceans, and make sure that our kids and our grandkids can still go fishing for these things when they're, you know, my age and older. Yes. I guess two things in response to that. One, if indeed there is anyone listening to this podcast right now who is excited about salmon going extinct, I would highly recommend speaking of someone who's gone to therapy, just work <laughs> on yourself first if you're excited about the salmon population going extinct. But to follow up on the fish farm thing, before we get into more about wild type, there are other downsides to fish farms, if I'm remembering my research correctly, right? It's not just that climate change is beginning to affect where fish farms can be located, but even in an ideal world in which climate change was somehow magically solved, fish farms wouldn't necessarily be the correct response to depleting our wild sources of salmon, right? Yeah. And I'll call back again to this conference I was at on Monday because it was so poignant just hearing these people speak about this fish and, and the way they described it. So, that if you know anything about fish farming in the U.S., a lot of it happens or happened in the Pacific Northwest and the Seattle area and then you know up into the Vancouver area. Those fish farms tend to be Atlantic salmon, which are 
an invasive species in the Pacific Ocean. There's been a number of pen breaks where you know the pen failed and these Atlantic salmon found their way into foreign waters effectively. And you know there are issues about obviously competition for limited food supply for a species like Chinook or Sakai or Coho that are on their way to extinction. So that's a problem, but also interbreeding and all these other things that people worry about. And so there's been a big movement afoot in that part of the country, both the United States and Canada, to begin to remove some of these open net pens. There's just some legislation passed, I think, very recently in British Columbia to that effect. And I believe the practice has been banned in the Puget Sound in Washington State. So that's one challenge. Other people would point out that, you know, these farms, because they are so densely concentrated with so many fish swimming in a relatively small area, produce a lot of pollution that tends to concentrate in certain areas on the seabed. I don't know as much about that. So, I, you know, I don't really feel comfortable talking too much about that. Oh, that's okay. It's just something that I've picked up in a number of conversations with people who kind of live along the coastlines and, and are dealing with that. So, you know, on one hand, most of our seafood, 80%, at least, you know, for a lot of the species we eat is farmed. And so if we want to continue to eat seafood, Without ruining those wild fish stocks, not just salmon, but many other species, then we have to rely on these farms. And, you know, I think the people and the companies that are behind these fish farms are trying like crazy to try to make them more sustainable. But it's difficult, right? When at least for now, a decent percentage of the fish feed that goes into fish farms comes from other wild caught fish like anchovies and sardines and so on, right? For example, there's a big movement afoot to try to move fish onto more of a plant-based diet. So there's lots and lots of challenges, but I don't think anybody in the industry is kind of happy just chugging along with, <laughs> with these challenges. Like everybody's working very hard to address them, but you know, with just so much demand, yeah, this sort of rush just to meet that demand, it really is hard to kind of pause, take stock and invest for the future in a way that would be, let's say, much more sustainable and easier on the environment. And so the idea was like, hey, we can start from scratch, carte blanche. How would we do this in a way that, as you pointed out, just creates the parts of the fish that we eat that might be free of things like mercury and microplastics and antibiotics that are sadly present in our fish today that, again, would be that third source of supply to help bolster up the challenges that we see with our current supplies of fish? As I was preparing for this conversation, the recurring theme was that the methods that we're using today to farm salmon, to basically get fish from wherever we catch them to the tables we eat them on. It's just not sustainable in the long term. What we're doing, what we're trying to innovate in that field simply isn't working. It's not keeping up with demand, which brings us to the third leg of the stool, so to speak. So let's go really wide. While most Americans, I imagine many people worldwide, don't know the nitty gritty of what goes into raising and slaughtering farm-based salmon. I think we have a general, if vague, idea of what happens to go from farm to table, so to speak. So we picture fish swimming around inside large nets, being fed whatever they're being fed for a few years, and then being killed and filleted before ending up in our grocery stores or on our restaurant plates. But I think for many folks who aren't actively watching your industry, this process, like the one that goes on at Wild Type, is like a big black box with a question mark on the side of it. That was a recurring theme that I got when I was asking some friends and family about what questions they might have for you. So with the understanding, of course, that parts of the wild type process are proprietary, I'd love for us to walk through what cellular agriculture is and how a piece of wild type salmon is made. I guess you could call it the lab to table process because I do like a good pun. So okay. yeah, walk us through that, Justin. 
Yeah. From a nomenclature perspective, we like to call our production area of, of fishery, actually, which is fitting because one of the buildings that we have where we produce our products is a refurbished, retrofitted brewery. Oh, cool. Where beer is brewed. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the similarities between our technology and that going forward. Let me just cover maybe the basics, the way that I kind of describe this to my friends and family who don't know too much about it. So the process starts with the selection and isolation of a stem cell. You've probably heard that term before, but like, what does that mean? Basically, stem cells have these two very important properties that are hyper-relevant for our production technologies. One, they are very eternally youthful. So if you keep them in the right environment, the right temperature with the right nutrients, they can continue to divide and grow pretty much ad infinitum. And second, they have the ability to turn into basically any other cell in the body. That could be a hair cell, it could be bone, it could be skin, it could be fat, it could be muscle. And so finding that right starter cell is really the first part of the process. The nice thing is, once you've done that and you've got your cell line, in a lot of ways, it's like a starter yeast for baking bread. It can last for generations. And in fact, the main cell line that we're using for our Pacific salmon was initially isolated from a fish three years ago, actually almost three and a half years now. Wow. The starter yeast in Italy is often called the mother dough. Yeah. So it's like you have a mother dough for salmon. That's right. And so once you have that mother dough, so to speak, then what we do is we expand those cells and let them grow in a very natural way in a big steel tank that looks very similar to what you'd find in a brewery. It's a little fancier. It has things like a temperature monitor and a pH probe. So we make sure that you know the pH is about right. It measures the amount of oxygen that's dissolved and the nutrients that we feed the cells. And just to say a word about that for a minute. So you may have heard this term cell culture media, which sounds really scary. But in fact, when we think about what that means, it's that the nutrients that the cells need, it's essentially a version of Gatorade, which has amino acids and salts and sugars, things like that, with a couple of proteins that cells need to thrive. It's a little bit more expensive than Gatorade, unfortunately, right now. And that's something, <laughs> something that we're working hard on to you know reduce the cost. But that's the basic idea. And so, we let the cells swim around in these big tanks, metaphorically. They don't have fins, <laughs> obviously, until they reach a pretty high density. And then what we do is we separate out that media, those cell nutrients. And by the way, we're working on figuring out what's the highest and best use of those nutrients. Could we recycle them really effectively back in by filtering out some of the things like ammonia and lactate and other things that cells create as waste products and then reintroduce those fresh nutrients back into a new batch? Or could those products then be sold on to other applications in the agricultural sector? But we separate the cells and we seed them onto this three-dimensional plant-based scaffold that we make using a combination of plant-based ingredients that would be very familiar to everybody listening. And then we leave the cells in the scaffold for an amount of time and they mature. Maybe they'll double or triple, quadruple a couple more times. And then we basically rinse the product, we trim it, we quality check it just to make sure from a consumer's perspective, it's ready to go. And of course, that it's safe to eat. And we have a whole lot of food safety controls, as you might imagine, like all other food producers in the United States do. And that's the basic idea. So in summary, it's three steps, the growth of cells, the separation of the cells from their nutrients, and the seeding of those cells onto a plant-based backbone that helps to give them the 
the structure and the texture that we need in the finished product. For our listener who might not be able to wrap their mind around like scaffolding in this instance, it literally is what it sounds like. It's basically like the scaffolding you might see around, I mean, in miniature, the scaffolding you might see around a house or something that's being built. If I'm understanding this correctly, Justin, the cells will grow onto the shape of the scaffolding. That's how wild type salmon goes from basically what you were talking about, kind of the Gatorade, so to speak, in the brewery container, more or less, to resembling a shape that looks like the slab of salmon you might see in a sushi restaurant. Exactly. That's right. And the important thing without getting too deep into the underlying tech and nerding out here too much. (laughs) Nerd away. Okay. So cells, the more I've learned about them over the years, and again, my background, I'm, you know, I was kind of the only non-scientist at WildType for a very long time. So I've learned a lot about it over the years, but from a layman's perspective, Cells have this amazing signaling quality where they send out signals to look into their environment and to get cues back from that environment about what they need to do, right? So they talk to one another, basically. They do. Yeah, yeah. And that is, you know, obviously, cells are the building blocks of life. And they, even at that level, have this sort of almost like Darwinian training to learn how to survive in the different environments that they're in. And so for cells that are in the growth mode, we we need to make sure we're giving them the right signals that they need to pick up from their environment to be healthy and to thrive and to grow. And then when it comes to taking on the structures that we need for a finished product, right, and getting the sort of like meaty flavor and texture, they need a little bit more of a solid anchor to grow onto and to get signals back from their environment to like, hey, now it's time to start producing things like collagen and like that stuff that's in between cells, it's time to start maybe looking and feeling more like a muscle cell. That's part of the function of the scaffold. And it also, at least for now, for our current generation of products, does provide a lot of the, you know, the structure and the texture of the products while we're still continuing to improve our technology. That's the basic function of them. It sort of provides a biological role in the process and it provides a sort of a structural and a textural one. That's so cool. And for our listeners, I have to imagine that some of what we're talking about today can seem kind of foreign to the ear, but I think it's important to anchor this in the fact that things like the scaffolding, right, and other parts of the wild-type process, you're really in some ways trying to trigger the exact same thing that that cell would be doing inside the body of an actual salmon when it's surrounded by bone and other pieces of the salmon's body. It's not that these cells are doing anything necessarily new or unique that they wouldn't do out in the wild, quote unquote. But it's rather you're trying to trigger them into doing something that they would naturally do out in the world. Exactly. That's so well put. I couldn't put it better myself. And what I would add to that is, unfortunately, there's not a lot known about how to give this sort of hospitable environment to fish cells. We just as a species don't know as much about those kind of environmental cues that the cells need as we do in, you know, for example, in human cells and things that we study for medical purposes much more closely. And so there's been a big discovery and learning curve that I could geek out about for hours, but I won't to kind of spare people listening from a lot of science jargon. But there's been so much discovery that we've made over the last few years about exactly what you're describing. So what is that environment that we need to make cells feel at home as they would in a fish Mm. and to perform those same types of functions that they do in the body in a very, very natural way? Just to be clear, we haven't used genetic engineering or anything crazy like that to get cells to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. We just haven't done that. We've worked hard to replicate and reproduce the natural environment to allow those natural processes to occur in a slightly different environment. 
Right. So something like wild type would not be considered, let's say, a GMO. Right. We're not using genetic engineering for our products. Yeah. An important distinction. You know, I mentioned a sushi chef earlier. And speaking of sushi, why did you decide to start with sushi-grade salmon, the kind to be served raw rather than cooked? And can wild-type salmon be cooked at this stage in its iterative process? Yeah. So to your first question, we started with sushi for a couple of reasons. One, I think when we go into a sushi bar, or sushi restaurant, we're in this exploratory frame of mind where you know we sit down at the bar across from the sushi chef. Mm. And if you're feeling adventurous that day, maybe you'll just let them take full agency and be like, chef, make me whatever you want, right? And you'll try different types of fish, different cuts, different preparations. And we're just open to new forms of new dishes, new experiences coming our way. And I think with something like this that, you know, looks and feels and tastes very familiar, but was produced in a pretty new way, that felt like a good environment to try these products in. That's brilliant. You're tailoring your product towards the audience most likely to be receptive to it. Yeah. I mean, there just aren't that many restaurant ideas or moments when we go out to eat where we're just like, I really want to try something new. And sushi is just this place where that happens, right? Right. So that was part of it. And the other was just sort of this audacious challenge to ourselves, which was like, at the time, back in 2017, when we were getting going and trying to figure out what we were going to focus on and what types of products we would make, we looked around and we saw a lot of products that were like minced and unstructured and not these like whole cut mm. products that you get, right? And we make a saku, which is the Japanese word for block. It's that long rectangular piece of fish that you see behind the omakase counter, behind the glass when you sit down at a sushi bar. So that's what we make. And that's what the chefs kind of slice the pieces of nigiri and sashimi and use the trimmings for rolls and so on. So same form factor. And so we wanted to challenge ourselves to make something hard, right? That I think you'd be hard pressed to do with just a plant-based technology. And so it was also this call to action, this audacious mission that we had to see if we could take that big leap and make a whole cut piece of fish. And so it was really the combination of those two things. In terms of the product's cookability, so we actually have a few different product lines already now. One is really best served raw. The other cooks marvelously well. And we haven't introduced that so publicly yet, but we will pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. What you said about omakase, the thematic similarity between an omakase chef and what you guys are doing at Wild Type is really appropriate, right? Because when you order omakase, and to our listeners, if you've never had it, if you go to a sushi restaurant and they have omakase as an option on the menu, you pay a set price and then you put your trust in the chef to then provide a series of courses and you're not sure what's going to be coming your way, but you know, based on the reputation of the restaurant and based on the skill of the chef, you're putting your trust in him or her to then put some food in front of you over the course of the next hour that you're pretty sure is going to be great. But omakase is so much anchored in the trust between the customer and the chef who's providing the fish. It's kind of the same type of a relationship that you're looking to cultivate, mm. pun intended, with potential customers for wild type. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, you know, in a lot of ways, chefs and the folks who are behind restaurants are the gatekeepers for a lot of food. Mm -hmm. And in fact, set the trends, right, for what's happening. And something that has just been really wonderful, particularly over the last two years, I'd say, we've had a lot of restaurant groups come to us, including like a large national poke chain, for example, Wow, with a question of like, hey, our customers are increasingly asking for really sustainable, pure 
seafood options. And what I'm able to get in the market isn't always meeting their expectations. Can you help us? In a lot of ways, it's really, really justifying. Yeah. When we started out, I mean, it's sort of like that old adage, right? I think maybe Henry Ford said this, but you know, if you asked a consumer at the time that he was coming up with the automobile, like what they wanted, they, they would have said a better horse, right? Yeah. But what they needed was an automobile. Mm. And in the early days of Wildtype, it sort of felt a little bit like that, right? We needed to sort of envision this big leap that was really outside of the imagination of most of us Yeah, that was solving this big problem in a really what at the time seemed like an extraordinarily outlandish way. But, you know, I think as we've gone along, now that people generally, and you know, it's not just us, I mean, there's this huge movement of plant-based entrepreneurs like Pat Brown at Impossible Foods, right? Who Mm -hmm. I think opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that like, hey, I can have a cheeseburger that tastes damn good and it came from plants, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is so cool. And I think for the longest time, we were sort of just... You know, you go to these barbecues and they'd have a vegan option and it was this like weird hockey puck looking thing that just (laughs) was edible, but you know, not enjoyable. Yeah. And then comes along the Impossible Burger that gives you this like, you eat that thing and you're like, ah, I've I've, like scratched my hamburger itch for the week, you know? Right. And so, I think with products like that on the market for beef, for example, now people are like, wait, shouldn't we have this option for so many of the other types of foods that we eat. And so we've just had this wave of inbound interest coming our way, which is a lot more than we can service, frankly. And so it's been really validating to a large extent hearing people talk about just how important these things are. And and it's coming from chefs, right? Who are that intermediary between the people sitting down at the restaurant ordering the food and the people who produce the protein in the first place. And I'm a huge fan of Impossible Foods. I oftentimes will literally just purchase their plant-based meat rather than meat at the grocery store or if they have it at the restaurant, I'll go for that. But I do want to just quickly comment on something you said earlier about honestly how impressive it is that you're in this space and the meat that you're growing doesn't look like a paste at this stage. Because while I'm incredibly excited about you know all different kinds of cultivated meats, whether they're you know chicken, fish, beef, etc., I read these stories where it's like, we've made a meatball or a chicken nugget, and it's great. But it's truly amazing, in my opinion, to actually see something that doesn't look like it's already been processed, right? Turned into a meatball or into a chicken finger. But something that when you're actually looking at it, it looks like it came from the animal in its full form. But I want to get to one of the most, I think, important topics that touches on a recurring question that I did get from some of my friends and family, and that's how wild-type salmon tastes. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've been collaborating with Adam Tortosa, the head chef at sushi-centered San Francisco restaurant Robin, to perfect the texture and taste of your fish. He said that when he was presented with your first prototype, it looked a bit like, to quote him, wet salmon jerky. <laughs> so I'll be linking to several videos that feature what your salmon looks like in 2022 so our listeners can see for themselves how radically close wild type appears to actual wild salmon. But how has this collaboration with Adam, and I imagine other chefs as well, helped to guide your fish from its, let's say, more iterative stages to the sushi-ready cuts that we see today? Yeah, look, we are so grateful to Adam and dozens of other chefs that have helped us over the years give us that real feedback that we needed. (laughs) I remember, you know, even before that moment with Adam, gosh, what year was that? I think it was 2000, 
might have been 2017, actually. Oh, wow. So about a year in. Yeah, when we had our very first prototype. So Ari and I, just to take a step back, we had this idea that we would be fools if we just locked ourselves, you know, within the four walls of wild type and just worked on products without getting into the hands of those intermediaries, like I was talking about, the people that we trust to shepherd good food onto our plates at restaurants and, you know, eventually in grocery stores. If we didn't have them in the mix telling us honestly what they thought, we would not iterate and improve our products as quickly as we could. And so, even in those very early days, we would have chefs come and try our product. And I mean, the the early feedback we got from them was devastating because the products were really immature at that point. But we needed to hear it, right? We needed to hear exactly what they didn't like, you know, because we can't sell our product and get customer feedback just yet, while we're still working through safety assessments with FDA. This was our best proxy for it, right? To do these small one-off tastings with people whose opinions we trust. And so, in a way, we've crowdsourced since the very earliest days of the company culinary input. And so, anytime a chef reaches out to us, they're like, gosh, you know, I've heard about what you're doing. I'm not sure I like it, but I'm curious. Like, can I try some? We will always let people try it because we really want to hear what people think. And so, coming back to your initial question about what it tastes like, maybe don't take my words for it, but I'll kind of quote other people who have described it. (laughs) You know, I would say today it is far better than the, I was just looking at a piece of this after work on Monday night in the sushi kiosk at my local grocery store, it looks and tastes much better than that. (laughs) But it's not that like amazing piece of like Bristol Bay salmon that you'd get in the wild. We're not there yet, Mm. but it's pretty darn good. So are there better cuts of salmon out there than what we're able to make today? Yes. Is ours a really great alternative today to sort of like mid-market, types of products? Absolutely. And in fact, when we've done, to the extent we've been able to kind of blind taste tests with people who aren't familiar with what's what, more often than not, our products get mistaken for even the finest farmed salmon, which is this salmon that comes from New Zealand called Aura King. Wow. It's a Chinook, regularly mistaken for our products and vice versa. So that's really encouraging. But, you know, I have to say just, you know, in the spirit of humility here, that we haven't figured it all out yet. This is still a work in progress. We're still improving. As you might imagine, there's no playbook here for how to craft the best salmon outside of a salmon, right? And so we're working like hell over here to try to make that just move as fast as it can with like a deep R&D and innovation focus to continue to improve those products. The best salmon outside of a salmon. That is such a great turn of phrase. Man, I can only imagine... I mean, obviously, like you said, it's a required process. You have to take whatever your product is, right? Whether in my instance, it's a creative piece that I'm working on, like a short film or a piece of writing, you have to put it out there to get feedback, even if, and especially when you know the feedback is going to be critical. Mm. But I have to imagine there is such a big difference between, like, let's take someone like myself. Like, I know what bad fish tastes like, like bad sushi. And I know when I've had really, really, truly expensive, really can't afford this, glad this is on someone else's tab, (laughs) sushi, but in the middle, right, between let's say like low middle to very high middle quality sushi, I really can't taste the difference, especially, you know, if there's rice and cucumber or whatever else involved. You know, a lot of these folks that you were prototyping and I imagine are still testing this product with, I mean, these are people who have palates they live or die, their career lives and dies by their ability to finally be able to tell the difference between multiple different cuts of salmon or fish just on taste alone. 
And to put your product not just in front of folks like me, let's say, who wouldn't even be able to understand the difference between the types of salmon that they're eating, to someone whose very career is based on being able to finely distinguish between different types of cuts and different parts of the world, not to put too fine a point on it, but that must have been nerve-wracking at some stages. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to go to Adam's Restaurant, Robin, which is wonderful experience. It was the first restaurant I went to actually when restaurants started opening back up after COVID. It was for my birthday actually last year. You're right. When you have kind of fish of that caliber prepared by people like Adam and the chefs that work with him, it's an amazing experience. And then so to a certain extent, you know, when Adam is like, yeah, I'll give this like a B minus, I'm like, ooh, that's like an A plus in my mind, right? Because <laughs> what he's working with is, you know, the finest fish that you can get, period. But at the same time, like, I really do believe, you know, if we can kind of get that feedback, exactly what needs to be tuned. And, you know, mm. there are other people that we've talked to who know salmon inside and out, and they can like tell us exactly what attributes need to be ratcheted up or down. It's just incredibly helpful. And so, one of our company values is transparency. And I think having that just open dialogue and transparency with the people who are shepherding the food to eaters, to diners, is super important to us. So, progress in whatever field we're talking about is almost always iterative, right? It's a series of small steps over a long period of time that lead to then large changes in the aggregate when you take a bird's eye view of something. But in this process that you've been going through of tasting and testing each prototype, so to speak, was there any point in that process from, you know, phase 2A to 2B or 4C to 4D in terms of versions of this product was there ever a point where there really was an aha or breakthrough moment where either you tasted it or one of the chefs or someone where they could really tell like, oh, wow, we've really nailed something here in this one step or two steps that we've been really trying hard to hit? Was there ever a process where it was like a eureka moment? Gosh, I, you know, I wish I could say yes, but I think the truth is it's just been a long, steady grind of learning, mm. you know, understanding what makes these cells thrive, understanding the interface between plant-based ingredients and cells. So just to come back to science for a second, because I, I find this endlessly interesting, cells can't talk to just any old plant. Like if you just buy a chunk of tofu from your grocery store and slap some cells on there, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> they need to pick up those cues again from their environment. And so we went through this huge exhaustive screen of all of these plant-based ingredients and sort of pairing them up almost like a, like a dating game or a dating show. Plenty of fish in the sea. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> the wild type dating show and just seeing where we could make a match, right? Where the cells would, would find a home, a hospitable home where they could thrive. And, you know, that was uh, just thousands of combinations we were trying, just brute force, really. Wow. And, you know, there are dozens of people here at Wildtype who were kind of behind that work in having that occur. And, th and that was just, it wasn't just like one day we we're like, woohoo, this is it. It was more like, okay, we learn a little bit here, let's then search for this thing and then take that, tune it a little bit. I mean, when you're in it, when you're building, as we are here, it feels like, painfully slow process. Mm. But every quarter, and then once a year, we have to look back and give a recap for our investors and our stakeholders. People have supported us. And I always marvel at how far we can travel in just three short months or in one year in particular. I love writing annual letters because the ground that we traveled is just huge with a you know, relatively small team here. So fish, like all animals that we eat, in part taste 
the way they do because of what they are fed. So as an example, you know, grain-fed beef tastes different from grass-fed beef because grain leaves the meat with a slightly sweeter taste, but grass-fed beef isn't as fatty as grain-fed beef and the muscles on a grass-fed cow are leaner. So one of the questions I got from a curious but somewhat befuddled friend when I asked him about our upcoming conversation was, quote, how do they get the salmon to taste like anything if they aren't feeding it anything? End quote. He's like, if the salmon don't have mouths, how do they, (laughs) how do you end up getting that taste to taste like what a salmon who's eating things in the wild would end up tasting like? Because in some ways, you know, you are what you eat. You end up tasting kind of like the food that you consume. So to kind of circle back to the process of making the fish, but keeping it linked to how the food eventually tastes, how do you replicate that process? To give a really poignant example of you are what you eat, there is such a thing as white salmon, believe it or not. And salmon's pigment comes from their diet. So if they're in an environment where there are a lot of krill, which give this red characteristic, bright red characteristic to the salmon that we eat, then they turn red. If there aren't krill in their diet, then they're actually white, which is, I think, something that a lot of people don't know. And similarly, you're absolutely right that the diet of fish influenced the flavor to a large extent. And, you know, I have to say, there's a really, really wide range of salmon flavors out there, you know, depending on where you get it, how fresh you eat it, what part of the salmon you're, you're eating, and so on. For us, I have to, you know, honestly, this is an area that we're still exploring. And just to give you an idea of some of the forces that we're balancing here, on one hand, we are trying to find those nutrients, that Gatorade that I was talking about earlier, that's as low cost as possible. So we can eventually have a profitable business, right? Make a product and sell it for less than it costs to make it. That, that would be good in the not too distant future. But at the same time, we also need to include inputs in that that are synonymous with what fish are eating in the wild. And I'll give you an example. So DHA and EPA, these omega-3s are not synthesized or created by fish. They're bioaccumulated. Algae produce them and then small krill will eat the algae and then little fish will eat the krill and then big fish like salmon will eat the little fish. And so we've included those in the nutrient mix that we feed ourselves. And so on one hand, we're juggling this very complex cost equation to try to make our products as accessible and affordable to as many people as possible. And on the other hand, we are trying to create a high fidelity version of a salmon diet outside of the salmon and outside of the seas and and rivers. Mm. It's been a real big challenge. And and it's actually something that we're actively exploring and investigating right now. Like what is that biological basis of flavor that shows up in our products? Because I'd say the biggest critique that we get about our salmon flavor is that it's mild. And it is, I, I would say. I actually sort of prefer mild salmon. Other people like stronger flavored fish. And it's something that we're actively working on right now to, you know, at least understand what it is that contributes to that end flavor in a meaningful way. I mean, mild seems like a good place to start because similar to how you might cook a steak, you can start with rare and you can always keep cooking it. (laughs) Right. Similarly, you can start with a mild taste and always ratchet it up from there. There were a couple things that stood out to me about what you just said. One is that to make wild type salmon taste how it tastes It's not just that you have to take into account what a salmon might eat in the wild, but what the salmon eats, eats, and what that thing eats might also eat. It's like there's so many steps in the process because, as you said, one thing eats another thing, eats another thing, and the salmon eats that thing. 
And so you have to take into account all these different various life cycles of actually several different creatures, which you aren't even artificially making, which is such an interesting insight. It's hard. It's very hard. I can imagine. But there was something you mentioned there about white salmon. And that reminds me of something I read years ago, which kind of boggled my mind a little bit, which is that a lot of the salmon that people buy in grocery stores actually isn't naturally pink, that rather it's dyed pink to appear how people expect salmon to look, because not necessarily every salmon that's farmed and then makes it to the grocery store has had a large diet of krill to turn itself naturally pink. That takes me to sort of another question, which is the kind of placebo effect that can happen when people believe they are experiencing something that they're actually not experiencing. Hmm. Like there was a study they did with wine labels and how the pleasure regions of the brain will light up when people believe they are enjoying more expensive wine. Like they'll hook them up to machines that scan the brain, but the wine could be the same cheap wine that they were served earlier that didn't trigger the pleasure regions. But when you put that same wine into a more expensive looking bottle, the pleasure regions of the brain light up. It's not that people are faking that they're enjoying the wine more. They actually really do enjoy the wine more if they believe it to be something else. Hmm. So have you ever done any kind of study that involves how people react to and enjoy wild type salmon if and when they don't know its origins and they just think it's quote unquote regular salmon versus how people react to it when they know where it's from? Right. Because I imagine that that probably plays a not unimportant role in how people actually literally enjoy the food. I think that sounds incredibly fascinating. We, we haven't done those kind of studies, but I think there's a lot of insight to be gained there. I think once we're in market in a big way, we can probably start to think about those topics. Probably leave it to the academic researchers, though, to <laughs> set up those studies appropriately so we can start to learn a little bit about that. But maybe the broader point that you're making is that, you know, I wonder. If you show up at a restaurant today and order a filet of salmon, Mm -hmm. and it's the same filet of salmon, let's say it's farmed from Chile, and, you know, the server comes out and says, this is farmed salmon that's been, you know, frozen for six months and now is coming to your plate, enjoy, versus somebody, you know, the server comes to your table and like, this is fresh off the boat from Bristol Bay, Alaska, Mm -hmm. you know, finest, it was shipped down here. Would I expect that same placebo effect to occur? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't have data to, to back that up, but I, I suspect that would be the case, right? Because your mind is in this place where you're ready to, and then sort of actively trigger this like expectation and then satisfaction of having what is perceived to be a higher quality product. Yes. And study after study proves this out that everything from the environment in which you're sitting, so how the restaurant looks, the quote-unquote quality of the servers who are attending to you, the music that's being played, the aroma in the air, where you believe the food or the wine to be coming from, like every step of that process can affect how we literally feel when we eat the food that's in front of us. And so it might be slightly tangential, but I see it as interesting field of study as we progress into this field, because I do think that people are oftentimes erroneously affected in how they enjoy something if they're told that it comes from A rather than from B, even if something like wild-type salmon, right, doesn't have parasites like farm-based salmon can have, doesn't have microplastics like lots of salmon that we eat, unfortunately, today can have, doesn't have any mercury and all those other upsides. It's just an interesting psychological problem to solve. Yeah, I agree. What would you say 
are some of the biggest hurdles that are facing wild type today to get you from where you're, I guess, still in the later prototyping stages to being able to serve it in restaurants and grocery stores? If I had to guess, probably getting costs down to something that's more competitive to like a 15 to $20 a pound of coho salmon today. And I imagine regulatory hurdles, but can you speak to those and, and maybe any other hurdles that we can't anticipate that might be preventing you from getting to market? Yeah, in a way, it's been the three big goals that we've been working on since we started the company. So first, and always, this will always be first, is getting as close to that perfect piece of salmon, the most pristine paragon of fish that we've had or that we can imagine is and will continue to be job one since we are a food company. Two is scaling. So just give you a sense of how big the seafood industry is. I was looking at a report the other day, something like 170 million tons of seafood are consumed every year, just a wow. shockingly large amount. And so for us, even just to make a tiny dent, the scale that we would need to be operating at is gargantuan. And I think for us, as we are still in a lot of ways, fine tuning and improving our technology, being asked to kind of hit pause on enough of it that we can build a larger facility to produce it has been a real challenge, right? Since in a lot of ways, we are at our core, kind of an innovation company that is now building out a relatively large production arm, a food production company in a lot of ways. So that is a big challenge. And then commensurate with that is cost reduction, as you pointed out. And, you know, that's a function of a lot of things, but largely how efficiently we can get our cells to grow and how automated a process can we make so we don't have as many of our folks here on the team kind of handcrafting things, which (laughs) too large of an extent still happens today. We're still in the very early stages of, you know, really efficient shaking out production systems here in our field. And then the wrapper around all of that, as you rightly pointed out, is finishing up this safety consultation with FDA that we've been engaged with now for a number of years. Those are the four big things that we are focused on for right now. Here's the question, and you tell me if it's too early to ask this, but thinking about how wild-type salmon is made, it's a proprietary recipe, so to speak, in that there's a specific way that the salmon is brewed, to use a, to use a phrase that you used earlier. There's specific steps that need to be taken, specific ingredients, specific processes that need to be done from A to Z all the way through to get what is known as wild-type salmon today. Is there a world where when you're scaling up production, this is something that you could potentially license to other production facilities so you don't have to necessarily build all of your own in-house? Or are you at the stage right now where you're not even making those considerations because you're still so early? It's a really great question. I don't think our field by definition needs to be as vertically integrated in the future as it is today. That's not the kind of business I would prefer to run for a number of reasons. But I think for now, just because the application of what we're doing is so novel, all the pieces are there. They've been established for other fields, but need to be pretty substantially adapted for our purposes. Until that process is done and we have, I would say, a fully functional shaken out plant that's large-scale fishery, that's producing, let's say, even just a million pounds a year, which sounds like a colossal amount, but is a drop in the ocean really for the amounts of food that we're producing. Until we get to that point, I think it's difficult to contemplate any kind of licensing agreement. However, I think in the long run, this field will probably splinter apart and people will begin to specialize, right? Right. So maybe you'll have companies that specialize in that starter yeast 
mother yeast kind of process where you're <laughs> setting up and establishing these cell lines for all kinds of different species right? and adapting them for large scale growth. Then you've got the companies that are working on those brew tanks, for example, mm. you've got companies that are producing those nutrient mixes and maybe even recycling them to keep it as efficient as possible. And then the operators who are making the large scale scaffolds and integrating the cells with them. So it's easy to imagine this field eventually breaking up into some component parts and having more specialization. But I think we're probably a good decade away from that point at this stage. It's so interesting because WildType is making food that we eat, right? Not cars or iPhones that we drive or put in our hands. In many ways, it is a kind of technology. And in the same way that multiple companies come together to make all of the various components that go inside of a car... But yet they all must, of course, be interconnected and working towards the same purpose. You can't have an engine that doesn't fit inside of, you know, a vehicle because it's not calibrated correctly. It's really fascinating to hear that response because you're absolutely right. Why wouldn't there be all these various micro but related industries that pop up once the industry of cellular agriculture finally matures? It's really a fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, this is going to seem a little tangential, but I promise there's a point. I know that wild-type salmon is not a GMO at all. There's nothing genetically modified, but I do want to share a story with our listeners about something that is a GMO because I think it's relevant. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Justin, golden rice. No, actually, I'm not. It's something I read about years ago, and it was both fascinating and frustrating. It's a genetically modified form of white rice that contains high levels of beta-carotene, which the body converts to vitamin A. So in 2012, the World Health Organization reported that about 250 million preschool children are affected by vitamin A deficiency, and that providing those children with a sufficient form of vitamin A could prevent a third of all under five deaths, or nearly three million deaths a year, right? So you would think, okay, wow, there's a lot of children out there who are suffering and dying from a lack of vitamin A. Here's this genetically modified rice that could feed so many people around the world, and all these children would need is one cup of golden rice each day to not die. And yet, well-meaning, but, and this is my perspective, misguided activists protested the distribution of golden rice seeds around the world, including the high demand areas of sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, on the basis that it was quote-unquote unnatural. And yet, you know, three million children every single year were passing away from lack of vitamin A. So, while I firmly believe that we need to have regulated food markets to keep people safe. We need to have the processes that companies like WildType are going through, for instance, right? Even though, of course, WildType is not a GMO. And the trial should be rigorous and transparent. I also worry that being overly focused on whether or not a food is quote-unquote natural can risk real fundamental progress for feeding humankind, right? A big theme behind WildType is things like sustainability. How can we continue to feed our human population as it continues to grow Climate change is beginning to affect how food is created, where food can be grown. You and Arye are clearly safety-minded yourselves. You seem very focused on making sure that you get things right from a safety perspective. How would you go about allaying the concerns of people who might want to either slow the process down of getting something like wild-type to market or may not want it to make it to market at all because they fear it's quote-unquote unnatural? How would you address those concerns? Uh, that's a really wonderful question. Well, I think for starters, we in this country, in the United States, have the most, if not among the most, secure food supplies in the world. And it's because we have very thoughtful, professional, and you know, great food regulators that are very thoughtful about allowing foods to enter into the food supply. And 
I have to say, you know, to the credit of the FDA, they've been very thoughtful, very meticulous, and very thorough in the conversations we've had with them. And, you know, as much as I would love to get wild type products in the market today, I think the importance of that process reaching its natural conclusion in a timeline that makes FDA completely satisfied that we've turned over every rock of potential safety hazards and we've created what is, I think, going to be the safest, cleanest way to make seafood on the planet when we have our production facility fully online should allay a lot of concerns. And I see that as part and parcel of getting consumers really comfortable with our products. The other thing to keep in mind is that you can actually buy so-cultivated foods today in Singapore at a handful of restaurants made by one of our fellow companies in the space, Eat Just. I never heard anything about people getting sick or, you know, having any kind of issues. So I think the other aspect to this is that regardless of how good of a job we do together with FDA, getting the products in the market and just having them be around for a while and people realizing like, hey, this is fine. Like we haven't had any issues. Like I think that'll also go a long way to, to making people feel comfortable. So having conversations like this that we're having today to get the word out about these products is a big part of that, getting them into the market having a super thorough deep dive on safety with our food authorities is part of it. And I think the combination of those things is what will help people get not just comfortable, but excited about trying these products. Is there anything that we haven't discussed in this conversation, either about wild type itself, your mission, or even just the larger field of cellular agriculture in general that you would like to discuss before we wrap up our conversation? Maybe just one thing, and I know this is going to sound strange coming from an entrepreneur whose you know, entire life and identity is tied up in the success of this company, but a question we often get is, how big of an impact can this have on these massive issues and challenges facing our global food supply today? And the only thing I, w I wanted to add is that you know I think we can have an incredibly powerful influence on moving our food supply globally toward a more sustainable, pure, clean, nutritious future that is accessible to a lot of people. But we're not going to do it on our own. I mean, the, the problems just facing our oceans, just taking seafood for a minute, are so colossal. It's going to take all of our efforts. So conventional seafood becoming a lot more sustainable, new technologies like cultivated and plant-based foods like wild type is making, and maybe us as consumers moderating our consumption of some of these products and, you know, ideally trying to pollute our oceans a lot less. If we do all of that, I think we've got a really good shot to return our oceans to this bountiful place of biodiverse health that people like David Attenborough, when he was much younger, had seen with their own eyes. And so, that is something that I just like to mention. Wild Type's doing is exciting and I obviously believe deeply in it, that it can have a big impact, but it's one piece of a really big challenge and puzzle that we're facing together that we need to get right as a globe. Yes. And I want to quickly put a finer point on how setting a modest goal initially can still have a major impact in the long term. There was probably Steve Jobs' most famous keynote from 2007 in which he introduced the iPhone. And he said that the iPhone's goal in the medium to long term was to achieve 1% of the 1.2 billion global mobile phone market, just 1%. And they reached that 1% mark by the next year, right? Now, Nokia in 2008 still had 38.6% of the market to Apple's 1%. But 
with the benefit of hindsight in 2022, we all know how that played out, right? Now, whether it's wild type that's going to gobble up a ton of the market space in the next decade or so, or just cellular agriculture in general, I think that setting a modest goal in some ways to the listener can be a little bit deceiving because when something catches fire, when something really touches people and connects with them because it's hitting the right price point, it's hitting the right kind of taste, it's addressing a real need, it's amazing how quickly things can catch on. So I just wanted to put a point to that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, to take us to our final question, Justin, in a discussion with Science Insider, you said that while it's still a long road ahead for your industry as a whole, quote, at the end of that road lies very nutritious, very accessible foods that are built on 21st century values, end quote. And over the course of this conversation, we've discussed some of the immediate and near-term questions and hurdles that are concerning wild type and the industry as a whole. But for the final question, I'd love to give you the space to paint your ideal picture of the future. In this world you imagine, once the regulatory steps are long behind you, any lingering concerns are addressed and the prices have become tantalizingly competitive, what does the world look like for your average consumer shopping to feed their family or out on the town for dinner? What does the end of, to use your words, that long road look like as we move further into the 21st century? Or to put it another way, Justin, where do we go next? Great question. There are a few things that I think about that get me so excited. One is at the end of that road, we have foods that are accessible, affordable, and highly nutritious. So for example, what if the world's most nutritious foods were also the most affordable? So if you could get a highly nutrient-dense filet of salmon, absent microplastics and mercury and all these other things that we've just come to accept but at a price cheaper than farmed chicken. Like what does that do to our food supply? Or somebody shopping for their family can offer this pristine, highly densely nutritious food at a cost lower than our cheapest form of animal protein today. That is absolutely possible. That has a tremendous impact in addressing malnutrition, addressing food inequity, and a number of other topics that we didn't even get into today that are not just a problem in far-flung places like Afghanistan, but right here in the United States with our own food deserts that we know a lot about. And so, that's one place where this goes. And I think similarly, in our natural environment, if we can just give our oceans and our natural fisheries 10 or 15 years of breathing space to repopulate, we can have oceans that are as bountiful and biodiverse as they were 50, 100, 200, 300 years ago, over a very short period of time. Scientists are quite confident about that. And so, I think in the not-too-distant future, we could have highly sustainable, like truly sustainable seafood that is nutritious, very accessible, and is independent of having to hunt wild animals. And now we have these sort of bountiful, wonderful, protected wild places that I think we as a species can't do without. So, that's where we go next. Well, Justin, cards on the table. I just want to say this is one of the most exciting areas of discussion, most exciting topics for me personally. And while I've attempted to retain a modicum of composure while talking with you today, I personally cannot wait to taste a piece of wild-type salmon myself. So, thank you again for all the work you're doing and thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. Awesome chatting with you today. Tune in May 24th for a conversation with entrepreneur and author Luke Burgess. 
Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.